we as Christians can be so self-deceived. We claim to worship the Creator of all things, and yet we often live our lives as if He is really not there. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of this book leads with the majesty and glory of Christ. In all the universe, there is nothing comparable to this Jesus whom we claim to follow, put our hope in, and aspire to be more like. And yet, in reality, we often follow idols. Really, anything that we place ahead of Christ and ahead of God. We put our hope in our own abilities. We do aspire to be like Christ, but only in those moments that we most easily already reflect who He is or reflects who we are. We neglect the reality of what it means to be a Christian and sincerely follow Him. In some ways, we follow not the God of the Bible, but we set up a God of our own making. This idol in our mind, it serves, uh, reflects more of our own identity than it does Christ, the divine Logos. We confuse our intuition for the Holy Spirit. In the end, we determine that God wants what I want. That becomes the king, that is, we become the king of the throne of our own heart. This rebellion against God is often very subtle. At times, we may skirt the edges of our own moral code and then pull back, not fearing uh, God or fearing disappointing God, but rather due to the social pressure of other believers and those around us. Family, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ serve to keep us on the straight and narrow. This social pressure works for a time, but the truth of the matter is that sin will have its day. And so we go on living lives trying to avoid grievous sin, and we live out a life of never-ending minor sins. At least we think they're minor. And all the while, we're pretending that everything is as it should be. And if it's not... It's the fault of others who do not follow God, at least the God of my own mind. Why? This, why, why are most, most of us are able to steer clear of wanton rebellion? And this keeps us in a basically, I'm a good person religion. And yet, if we're honest, we all have those little secrets that we don't want anyone else to know about. You see, damage control becomes more important than a clear conscience. I'm sorry if if these dark thoughts disturb you, and yet I'm not sorry to expose the deeds of darkness. My intent is not to disturb, but rather to wake us up. So what is at the root of this lukewarmness, Christianity? I believe it is neglect. God has put it on my heart as I was praying about this that neglect is a major concern for the church in the United States, in America. And so I I, I have much to say on this. 
uh, probably three sermons worth. I won't preach all three this morning, I promise. Um, but I want to first take a look at the church in Laodicea. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Write to the angel of the church of Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment for your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, I want to lift up this morning to you. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to recognize the problem of neglect. And Lord, more importantly, what we ought to do to rectify that problem. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go, go ahead and be seated. Jesus is sending a, me a message here. Uh, notice the titles that he uses for himself. Amen. Faithful and true witness. Creator. Disciplinarian. And the one who waits on us. The King of Heaven. Uh, this Jesus uh, of the Bible is a complex man and deity. Amen is a statement of truth-telling. Jesus is asserting, asserting that His divine and complete knowledge, Logos, as the messenger, the angel, to know the truth that He is proclaiming. Jesus is the faithful and true witness is unlike any other witness. Um, he is trustworthy and always speaks the truth. Jesus created all things. Everything that is near and every remote speck in the universe originated in the mind of Christ. To invite Jesus in, and He is knocking if you hear Him, to invite Him in is to be open to discipline. Jesus has some hard words for you and I. Loving, yet difficult to hear. How often we leave Jesus waiting at the door while we complain about the world around us. How foolish that seems. The Creator of the universe is standing at my door waiting to come in and offer some correction so that my life would align with the world that He created. 
And yet, I leave him as a neglected guest. Oh, sure, I talk to him through the door sometimes, but let him in? I mean, really, really let him in. Transforming, sold-out, sanctifying presence of the divine Logos and not just a sip of those tales that we hear about on Sunday mornings. The king waits on you to invite him in. Amazing, really. Think about a person that you have high regard for. If, if, if I was to tell you that that person that he or she was coming over to your house today, would you leave that person standing outside your door? How would you react? Jesus has become the neglected guest of our life. We claim that he is king, and yet we treat him as somebody that we genuinely wish would come back later. So what does the sickness of lukewarmness say about us? We are completely self-sufficient in our material wealth. And yet for all this privilege, we have become unaware, blind, to how desperately poor and spiritually blind we really are. We are wretched. This state of the man who is, uh, this is a state of the man who is longing to do good, but finds himself incapable of doing so. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, we read, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Only in this case, the illness is worse. This lukewarmness blinds us to our own wretchedness. It keeps us stuck in an I'm-not-so-bad religion. Paul was at least aware of his wretchedness. In fact, it is only when we come to grips with our own wretchedness that we can ultimately recognize our need of Christ. Not as a nice guy to hang out with a couple times a week, but as the Savior of our souls who wants to take up residence in our hearts and lives. We are pitiful. My first reaction to hearing that we are pitiful is that, God, that Jesus sees us as pathetic. However, that's not the word that's used here. Jesus is saying, rather, in the nature of His mercy, Jesus looks upon us with a sorrow. As if to say, if they would just open up the door and let me in, I can make things right in their lives. It's looking at a person with the knowledge that his or her life could be better, and yet they keep on making destructive choices. The love of Jesus has for you causes his heart to grieve when we live out lukewarm Christianity. And again, we're blind to the state, we are poor. You know, that observation is jarring. How can someone who is wealthy be poor? Well, the first way that we're poor is we believe that the possessions of this world have any comparison to what awaits us in the kingdom of heaven. This wealth is no comparison. The wealth we have in this life is no comparison to the wealth that is in heaven. A second way that we're poor is in our self-image. We think we're good enough. 
We're self-made. Self-esteem has become a drug in which we pursue uh, over peace with God. God wants me to be happy. Maybe. Maybe not. But I do know this. That God wants you to be content in godliness. God wants you to be content in godliness. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. The third way that we're poor is our lack of connection to the things of the Spirit. Our material lives have become such a priority that there's no room for spiritual things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Happiness stemming from this material world has become our religion. Happiness from this material world has become our worship. We are spiritually impoverished. We are blind. And this is a sort of double blindness. Uh, Being blind is bad enough. But in this case, we add that we don't even know that we're blind. And there's a psychological concept called a blind spot. And this happens when a person does not see in themselves things that other people readily see about them. And these blind spots create a problem to, uh, d- that's destructive to the other person's well-being. And it all, often ends up affecting and ruining relationships with others. In this way, that we, we have a spiritual blind spot. We don't know that we don't know. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, says, I know your works. That is, Jesus can see to the heart of the matter. Jesus knows our psychological, and more importantly, our spiritual blind spots. The difficulty of blind spots is when somebody points them out to you, we often just deny it because we don't see it. It really takes the rebuke of someone that you love and care and trust to open our eyes to that blindness. And in this case, Jesus is that person. By His Holy Spirit, He knows and He loves us. We need to trust in Him to illuminate those blind spots that exist in our lives. We are naked. There's an innocence that comes from when you're young and you're naked, you don't know it. Uh, But at some point, you become aware of good and evil and then shame comes from nakedness. That shame is awakened. Well, this is taken a step further here. We think that we're clothed in righteousness, but in reality, we are shamefully without any covering at all. Our material wealth has afforded us nice things to wear. However, it has robbed us of the opportunity to put on spiritual garments. If anything, we are wearing filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities carry us away like the wind. 
We are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. So what can we do? What can we do about this state? And here's the reality. There is nothing that we can do in ourselves to deal with this very desperate situation that we face. Remember Paul in Lord, so then with my mind, I am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. This Jesus that we worship advises lukewarm Christians to do three things. To buy gold refined with fire, to buy white clothes, and to buy ointment for our eyes. The, the value of gold is ultimately determined by its purity. This metaphor of the purity is the wealth that is found in gold. We in the United States no longer have what's called a gold standard. In the past, we, I, I, we have a dollar bill that was backed by gold. And so you could take your money and literally go buy gold coins at one point in our history. That the value of one dollar was one dollar in gold. But what we've changed it to is to a promise. Our monetary system is based on that promise. And uh, these bills that we now hold in our wallets are a promise from our government about the worth of that paper that we have in our pocket. In this illustration, we have Jesus saying that we've placed our faith in something that has no spiritual value. We have replaced true spirituality with fiat spirituality. Jesus is suggesting that we buy something that has real value and not just that, but a value that has been purified. You know, ironically, the currency at the time of the book of Revelation was in one of the first experiments in fiat currency. You see, before Jesus' birth, the um, denarius, the prevailing currency of the time, was made of silver and before Jesus's birth they had shrunk the size of the denarius so making it smaller and smaller uh, thereby decreasing the amount of silver in the denarius up until the time of his birth so it had already been devalued another thing that's interesting is that during Jesus's life the purity of the denarius went up in value so it went from 95 percent silver to somewhere around 98% silver during Jesus' life. Following the death of Christ, the Roman treasury reduced the purity of the silver of the denarius repeatedly. At the time the book of Revelation was written, it was as low as 93% silver. So it went from 98% silver to 93% silver. Eventually, the Roman Empire debased the denarius by adding more and more metals that were not silver to the point where they ended up with a denarius that only had 5% silver. This is shortly before the collapse of the Roman Empire. Why do I share this? Well, Jesus is telling us that the lukewarm church is basing our lives on a debased currency that loses value over time. Instead, we ought to be investing in things 
that are pure and hold value. And since the metaphor is not talking about literal money, what domain of life is Jesus talking about? Well, let's look at a couple other passages. The first one is in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. This passage is talking about the Jewish Messiah. It seems that not all will follow Christ, but a remnant, a third, will obey Christ. And what's interesting about this group is that they will be refined as gold is refined. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-7, we read, You rejoice in this, even though for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is perishable, is refined by fire, may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, we see that suffering and trials are the, God's method for refining His people. Again, he uses gold as a metaphor. In fact, Peter suggests that proven character of one's faith is more valuable than purified gold. So another thing that we learn is that if we are seeking a life without trials or struggles, we will never be more than lukewarm Christians. Let me repeat that. If we're seeking a life without trials or struggles, then we will never be more than lukewarm believers. Our pursuit of a comfortable life has become our spiritual poverty. One, one more way to look at buying pure gold is looking at the time frame of your investments. In this sense, we can invest in this life or we can invest in the future, in eternity. Jesus explained it to His disciples this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we invest in pure gold of God is offering, we purchase things that do not go in, down in value, do not break down, or are otherwise destroyed. No, we invest in something that has eternal consequences and eternal security. Jesus also suggests that we buy white garments. Clothing is a symbol of our culture and communicates a lot about a person. We learn a lot about looking at what somebody puts on. What are they wearing? We learn about a person's social status, wealth, we learn about power and self-identity and political leanings. We learn about loves and idols and occupations and housing status. We learn about the desire to have a sexual encounter, 
vanity, professionalism, leisure, sports, group identity, and so on. We can tell a lot about a person by what they wear. Interestingly, the Bible tells us that we're not to show favoritism based on worldly fashion and calls such judgments evil. In James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says, Brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as to hold on to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy rags also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in this good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? How does this relate to Jesus' admonition to buy white garments? Well, white is a symbol of purity. The garment is a symbol of God's covering. Taken a step further, the garment is a sign of God's redemptive covering. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord made for them clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. God covered Adam and Eve's shame. And the clothing that he gave them was both physical and spiritual covering of sin. This theme often gets repeated throughout Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult my Lord. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a groom wears a turban, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We see here that the covering of God is, comes from God. and There's a spiritual covering that reveals the holiness, spiritual wealth, and salvation found in Jesus Christ. This is to contrast what we can do in our own strength, what we do with our own sin. At best, we learn at best, we can cover up our sin, but we can never atone for our sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We are covering up our sin with spiritual fig leaves. God, on the other hand, can make an atonement, a covering for our sin. This is ultimately fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. The covering found in Christ means that we are forgiven. Our sins have been paid for. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Love consists of this, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. To purchase a white garment, then, is to invest in the righteousness and forgiveness that we find in Christ. We put on the righteousness of Christ, and He takes on the shame of our sin. It is interesting to note that Jesus was stripped of His clothing when He took on the shame of our sin. In John chapter 
19, verse 23, it says, The soldiers crucified Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. They took his clothes and divided them into four parts. It was sort of a reverse picture of the Adam and Eve in Genesis. Um, we invest in the garments of righteousness. When we do that, we're acknowledging that we are putting our shame on Christ and that we are receiving the forgiveness of God and that we're putting on the holiness of Christ. A third item that Jesus says to purchase is ointment for the eyes. Spiritual blindness is a danger in church life. Blindness is bad enough for the one that is blind, but blind leading the blind can be disastrous. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 14, uh, 15, verse 14. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind guide the blind, both will fall into the pit. How do we avoid the pitfalls of this life? How do we help others do the same with our, when we need our spiritual sight? Well, we invest in things that bring sight to our darkness. Jesus is, again, the source of our recovered sight. Luke chapter 14, verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed. Since this message is to the church, it would seem that this eye treatment it needs to be ongoing if we're to maintain any spiritual insight open to us when we're saved. The ongoing treatment of our eyes keeps us from hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, it says, Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. This treatment keeps us uh, being able to turn from darkness to light. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, it says, To open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This treatment keeps us filled with insight into spiritual matters. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This treatment of the eyes keeps us on the paths of righteousness. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Without revelation, the people run wild, but the one who follows divine instruction will be happy. You know, there's more that I have on my heart regarding this, but I want to sort of bring things to a close this morning. We live in danger of good enough Christianity. Let me say that again. We live in danger of good enough Christianity. This neglect, this is a neglect of our souls, and this is the neglect of others' souls. Our life of relative ease has caused us to be blind to our own spiritual poverty. In many ways, we've become like the lukewarm Christians of Laodicea. Here's the diagnosis. We are wretched, pitiful, 
poor, blind, and naked. These are spiritual deficits. With our, we, we cover up our wretchedness with I am good enough religion. We cover up our pitifulness with the avoidance of Christ and the quenching of the Holy Spirit. We cover up our spiritual poverty with material wealth. We cover up our blindness through the denial of our spiritual blind spots. We cover up our nakedness with worldly fashion and dirty rags. The good news, though, is that we have a cure for all of this. It is the Savior who stands at the door waiting for each one of us to let Him in. Jesus wants us to invest in heavenly treasure. Jesus does not want us to cover up. He wants to take our shame and to put on His righteous garment. Jesus wants to give us eyes so that we can see things as He sees them. Really, we have a choice here. We can continue on in our spiritually blind wretchedness while soothing ourselves with the false security of our material well-being. Or, we can take the rebuke of the One who loves our souls more than we can possibly imagine. This fearful yet loving rebuke stands at our door. I can understand the reluctance of wanting to let Him in. However, the eternal consequences of not inviting Him in are disastrous. It is better to endure the transforming correction than to experience the full weight of spiritual neglect. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we come before you this morning confessing our sin. Lord, confessing that good enough Christianity has kept us from your righteousness, has led us to compromise, has led us to not live out the fullness of the great salvation you've given us. So, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would change our hearts, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might live out a life that honors and glorifies you. Lord, help us to purchase the treasures of heaven. Help us to put on the righteousness that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to open our eyes to see clearly as you see. And Lord, if there's any here that do not know you this morning, that have never placed their faith in you, I pray, Lord, that you would not let them go before they turn to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that you would deal with us, deal with our own 
neglect, deal with our own lukewarmness. Lord, we want to be on fire. We want to be hot for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.